The Going Viral podcast from Health Ed shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the Health Ed app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to Health Ed's Going Viral. I am David Lim. Professor Stephen Duckett takes a closer look at the government's roadmap out of this pandemic and raises some important questions and comments on the current New South Wales Delta variant lockdown. Stephen, first up, what are your comments about the modelling itself? And are the vaccination targets effective, realistic and achievable? So, David, there are a couple of things. The, first of all, we have to separate out the roadmap mm-hmm. and the modelling. Okay. It's important to know that the Doherty Institute and their collaborators were asked to model a very narrow component. That is, they weren't asked to model each of, you know, what you need to do to get to phase B, phase C and phase D. Oh. They're only asked to model about phase B. So, and they've said, for example, they didn't want to do anything more because, you know, it's a week is a long time in politics. <laughs> a week is a very, very long time with uh, this virus. So they, there was a very narrow request of Doherty. So you, you can't fault Doherty for, for not doing what they weren't asked to do. What's important about the modelling is the, the, the roadmap is very vague about what it's it's actually asked you know what the phases actually are so it, it, it visually the 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 roadmap is in four columns mm-hmm. and each of the columns start with the phrase measures may include measures may include so it it's it's vague to start with and then when it starts talking about lockdowns it says under phase B, lockdowns are less likely, but positive, uh, but possible. Mm-hmm. And then it says, ease restrictions on vaccinated residents, brackets to be determined. So mm-hmm. certainly there is modelling underpinning this, but the modelling itself is, is not what is reflected in the actual roadmap. Right. The second thing about the modelling is that they, as good modellers do, presented options. And so they said in their modelling, what will things look like if we've got inverted commas optimal testing, tracing, and isolation, and optimal quarantine? And they said this will be the outcome. And then they said, what happens if we have not quite as optimal? If 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 the if the testing, tracing, isolation, and quarantine mm-hmm. is less effective, and this will be the outcome. Now, if 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 you take the the less optimal scenario, then we're going to have to have lockdowns somewhere between 20 and 40% of the time. Lockdowns of the kind we had in Victoria, so very, very stringent lockdowns. So the government was able to pick and choose from the scenarios that Doherty presented to them. So it's probably not fair to say, you know, it's underpinned by the Doherty modelling. It certainly is, but it did involve government making choices. Now, you and I both know, David, that our quarantine program is certainly not optimal. 
Mm. And neither is our testing, tracing and isolation program, especially when the virus gets out of control mm. as it looks to be what's happening in New South Wales. Mm -hmm. Wow, I actually didn't know any of this, Stephen. Well, it's it's buried in the fine print. I mean, the the there's a the the Doherty document is a thirty eight page, I think it is something that like that uh, document, and and it, you know it, it, they're a really competent team, but and they are pretty upfront about what they say. But you have to look to page twenty seven to to find out about the 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 differences between optimal and not optimal modelling and uh, t, what they call TTIQ testing, tracing, isolation, and quarantine. And so it, it's not up front. And of course, the government didn't make it up front. It shows the choices that they've made. Well, that certainly casts it all in a different light and makes us realise that as in real life, there is in fact a spectrum of possibilities, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's one of the virtues of modelling, because, you know, it's, in real life, you only get one go at these things. But with modelling, mm -hmm. you can test in a simulation, uh, you know, what would happen if, what would happen if. Mm. And so you, you can look at different uh, options. And of course, that's what Doherty did. Okay. And I'd just like to repeat what you said earlier, Stephen, is that in the less optimal scenario, we are looking at lockdowns about 40% of the time. Somewhere between 20 and 40% of the time. Uh, the, 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 the range is uh, associated with Doherty modelled different vaccine rollout strategies, whether they went with younger people first ahead of older people and so on. So okay. that's why you get that range. Oh dear, that's very sobering, isn't it? I mean, look, let's let's ask another question, which is that um, it all looks as if the numbers of people vaccinated are adults over the age of 16. But more and more, we are seeing children uh, being infected and at risk. They were not taken into account but now that we may have to, what does that make of the modelling? So, so David, the, it, it is very peculiar. Um, so the, the government's threshold are 70% and 80% of the adult population, that yeah. is of the population over 16. Mm -hmm. Now, remember the vaccine has been approved, the Pfizer vaccine has been approved for people over 12. Yep. So it's, it is a, you know, it used to be approved for people over 16, but it's now over 12. So. It's, it's a, a very funny age split. And it's as if the virus doesn't spread in people under 16. Mm -hmm, if, mm -hmm. if you're looking for herd immunity, which, you know, if you're going to lift all its restrictions, you need to have sufficient vaccination that the virus peters out without further isolation. Well, you need very, very high levels of the population vaccinated. We estimated 80% of the total population and indeed 95% of the vulnerable population. So 70% of the adult population is only 56% of, the, of right. the total population. So the, the virus is going to spread. And importantly, the people it's going to spread to are kids because they're not vaccinated mm. at the moment. And we are seeing, especially in Queensland, that the virus definitely spreads to kids. And mm. not only that, but young people get sick. Yep. So from the virus and, and so you know to exclude children under 16 from even contemplation as part of the, the, the ratio that you're looking at does seem to me to be bizarre and and what's worse David is there is no there's no mention in the roadmap about what on earth they're going to do to protect children you know what are they going to do to make schools safe 
for, for parents uh, to send their kids to. Uh, Stephen, it looks as if the future of Australia has been forgotten then. <laughs> well, you can be sure as eggs are eggs that um, the parents are not going to forget that their kids are a danger if they go to school. And so the, the parents are going to have this terrible choice. You know, are we going to continue with homeschooling with all the disadvantages that associated with that? Because we know that homeschooling is not as good as face-to-face -face schooling. Kids lose progress in homeschooling. So that is a safer alternative, but a, a less good for the kids' education versus sending them to school where the virus might be circulating. So it is a really difficult situation. I think the parents will vote to keep their kids safe, even mm. though they know it, uh, it means they, their education will not be as good as it might otherwise have been. Well, in a, in a horrible way of thinking about it, Stephen, at least you have a child that is less well-educated than no child. Yeah, I know. It is just this tragic choice that um, the parents might be faced with. Mm. Mm. Actually, keeping in mind what you had just said, a lot of all this depends upon the supply of vaccines, uh, whether it be for adults or adults and children. However, we are seeing a lot of COVID cases surging overseas and, you know, other countries are mulling booster shots. And I can imagine that um, the promised supply of vaccines to Australia may not actually eventuate as promised. What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, um, it is, that's really a hard question, David, because the, what the government has said is, they haven't fra phrased it as starkly as this, but basically what they're saying is we stuffed up. We didn't, you know, the real problem at the moment is supply, but the good news is more supplies around the corner. So mm -hmm. they've said we're going to double the number of doses next month and double the month after and double the month after. Mm -hmm. So that come October, there'll be plenty of doses. So the problem will, will no longer be demand in excess of supply. Mm -hmm. Supply will have been fixed. Now, do I believe them? Uh, I listened to the Prime Minister's con press conference the other day and one of the journalists said, you know, in the last 30 minutes, South Korea has said that um, Pfizer has cut the number of doses or something yeah. like that. There was, a, there was another supply problem. Yeah. Now, so do we think the government has actually got an absolutely cast iron guarantee that the doses will flow into the country? Well, I've got no idea about that, but I'm a bit of a Pollyanna, a bit of an optimist. And, and mm -hmm. so I think let's assume they do have, mm -hmm. let's assume the supply problem actually is fixed come October, September, October. So that certainly they have purchased so much supply now, albeit too late, that it, it, even if a third gets cancelled, they'll still have enough. Okay, that's actually very heartening to hear that, actually. Now, the next question, Stephen, has to look at the fact that the transmission of the Delta variant has been really quite rapid. Uh, new infections stemming from fleeting encounters, the fact there are more asymptomatic spreaders and more super-spreading events. Now, what I'm seeing is that this virus is incredibly tenacious and sneaky. Today, New South Wales has reported 356 cases with about half in the community whilst infectious. Question for you, Stephen. Can we put the Delta variant genie back in the bottle? Well, there are two things to remember, David. The reason Delta is the dominant variant in Australia now 
is because it spreads more easily and more rapidly than previous variants. That's how that's how viruses work. One supersedes the other because it spreads faster and, and easier. So we should always have anticipated that there were there was going to be mutations, and that those mutations would be more easily spread. What we don't know, or what we didn't know, and couldn't anticipate, is whether it was going to be more dangerous, whether whether the outcomes will be dangerous mm -hmm. or not. But we did know it was going to be more. It was going to spread more, and so we should have been thinking about that right from the start. That means that when we saw the virus starting to spread, we should have locked down quickly. This is what Victoria's strategy, South Australia's strategy, Queensland's strategy has been from the very start. Mm -hmm. Locked down hard and quickly. New South Wales strategy has been different. They've said, we have got really good testing, tracing and isolation systems, systems in place. Yep. So we think we can control spread with less less harsh, less strict lockdowns than the other states. And to be fair, they did for 2020, most of 2020 and the first part of 2021. Mm -hmm. Now, some of that was luck. If I give you the example, one of the Victorian lockdowns was caused by a person who came from South Australia and happened to live in Melbourne and brought the virus with him. If he happened to live in Sydney, they would have had a super spreader event in the same way we did and that yeah, so they were lucky. Mm. But they also had good uh, testing, tracing, isolation systems in place. Now, what happened was, as good as they were, they couldn't control the spread this time because there was just too much spread early. And they didn't, they, they thought they could continue on their old ways and control it uh, with light touch uh, arrangements and they couldn't, and it got out of control. Now, remember that this this yesterday or so, there, are, there were 300 or so uh, new cases yesterday. Now, at the worst of the Victorian lockdown, there were 700 new mm -hmm. cases. Now, admittedly, that variant uh, transmitted was, was less transmissible, um, so it was somewhat easier to control, but it took a 110-day pretty strict lockdown to get it. So they've, they've not got as many cases as Victoria had at its worst, but a much more transmissible virus. So I think they're going to be battling mm. to get it under control with the current level of restrictions. And you've also got, uh, because of its history, with the government saying, yeah, lockdowns are for wimps and Victorians, those two words are synonyms, I think, uh, in the New South Wales view, the population is not adhering to those restrictions as much. Mm -hmm. I mean, you and I have both seen photos of people wandering around Bondi Beach yep. in crowds without masks. Yep. And you know, we know that the vaccine can transmit outdoors there's nothing magic about outdoors especially if you're walking you know next to someone for a long time and even if you're not walking next to someone for a long time it can transmit with fleeting fleeting contact so um i think the new south wales population is not treating this as seriously as they ought mm. the government is using words like should rather than words like must 
Mm, mm. And so it is just going to be that much harder to get it under control. The next 90 seconds contains an important public health announcement. Hi, my name's Christine McCartney. I'm the director of the Australian National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance. This is just a reminder to vaccinate all of our uh, patients this year for influenza. We've had a challenge rolling out both the COVID-19 vaccines and influenza vaccines, and I know that's particularly felt in primary care. But we are down on numbers vaccinated for flu this year, compared with some of the excellent uh, rollout that's occurred in 2020 and even in 2019. Last year, 2020, we had almost no flu season and there's not much flu activity this year. It's never possible though to predict when and if a big flu season will come. People are quarantining, but we've seen COVID-19 breaks through quarantine and we could easily see that with influenza. In addition, we'd like to start to open up and have more travellers coming you know, in and out of Australia, particularly as the population gets vaccinated against COVID-19. With that will come flu. So we are on the cusp at some time in the near future in having another whopper of a flu season. And that's the reason to be sure to, to be offering flu vaccine, particularly to the most vulnerable people in respect of you know, serious outcomes for influenza. The other problem we have here, Stephen, is exactly what you described. Uh, the television would show uh, that Sydney is divided into those who can walk by the beach without masks and do exercises, and others who really have been told they can't get on the streets and receive a $1,000 fine. So we are actually quite divisive now. Um, and, and the population feels it, or at least parts of Sydney feels divided and isolated. So that's not a great thing. But, but I do worry uh, that the fact that more than 150 people, I just don't know the numbers right now, were actually walking around whilst they were infectious. So I, I hear what you said about Victoria, but I don't think they had such large numbers walking around. Never, you know, the, and, and when people walked around in, during the lockdown, the streets were empty. I live in the central business district in Melbourne and the streets were totally empty. Nothing, no, nothing happening there. But you even have people who just deny mm -hmm. that COVID exists and then travel up to the North Coast taking COVID with them. You know, you know how, how on earth can people think that? Mm. And, you know, it is really hard for the government <sighs> when you've got people who travel while infectious and feel quite relaxed about it and don't have any responsibility to their neighbour. See, but I guess I'm going to ask you a horrible question. If our numbers of people walking the streets remain above 100 every day, will we ever put this genie back in the bottle? The, the, the short answer is eventually, because eventually everybody's going to get infected. Okay. And some of them are going to be seriously infected in hospital, in ICU. Some of them are going to die, as we are seeing, some young people. And so eventually we're either going to have the vaccination rollout catch up, or we're going to have natural herd immunity because of infections. And I think this is a tragedy for the country when we have been so good 
at keeping the virus under control, yep. uh, especially in the other states, that we are now, when the end is in sight, when we've got a vaccine, uh, to let this genie out of the bottle, as you say. Now, one of the things that uh, was mentioned um, by uh, Paul Kelly, he used the word circuit breaker and then he went back on it. But I wonder, Stephen, whether or not, seriously, Sydney just needs to make sure everybody stays home and empty the streets. Can we do it? And is it worth it? The short answer, David, is we did it in Melbourne. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, you know, as frustrating as it is, you know, I'm only allowed outside today for five reasons. And, you know, we have to stay inside. We have to not be spreaders. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the only way we'll get this virus under control while we have low levels of people vaccinated. Now, Melbourne is roughly the same population as Sydney. Um, and if we can do it, there seems no reason why it's I just don't understand the political will is missing. But anyway, that's not my capacity. But David, I think it's partly because the, the history, the, the language last year was, you know, that there was a, an economics versus public health trade-off. And, and lots of people believe that. You had Health Minister Hunt and Treasurer Frydenberg telling Victorians that, you know, don't take any notice of the government you know, this is, well, rather calling the government the wrong thing, you know, that they're doing the wrong thing by doing the lockdowns. Mm. When the overwhelming evidence, both Australian evidence now and international evidence, is there is no trade-off, that the right thing for the economy is also the right thing for public health, and mm. lockdowns actually protect the economy and get us out of this mess quicker than just letting the virus rumble around like it is in Sydney. Stephen, I hear you loud and clear, and I'm just praying that um, this message is actually resonating right now in the chambers of power. Yes, it's so sad, David, because we, you know, Australia has been the envy of the world with its COVID zero strategy, and people are looking to us. And sure, there are going to be hiccups like we have in Victoria, where, where it gets out of control and you have to, you know, go back into lockdown, hopefully for only a few days. But you know, we've got to actually keep up the pressure and not just and not give up. Because if we do give up, it means tragedies for many families as yes. loved ones go to hospital, ICU, and and maybe suffer long COVID for for a long time after. It's lives, livelihoods, dreams, and hopes all smashed. Stephen, just moving away from this topic because it can get me to a rather dark spot. Um, I'd like to look overseas now into to Israel and the UK, where we have populations that have high levels of, if you like, vaccination, but they seem to be taking quite divergent courses at the moment. Firstly, why is that? And secondly, what implications can this have on our roadmap? Yeah, so very interestingly, England has been a, a really interesting parallel case study to Australia. I think they managed the pandemic very, very badly. They let it get out of control. They had their so-called freedom days. They, you know, they just managed the whole pandemic badly. But mm. they managed the vaccine rollout extremely well. Right. And they managed, they're now managing uh, testing very well as well. Whereas we did the reverse. We managed the pandemic extremely well, but we managed the vaccine rollout appallingly badly. Mm. So, but, but what's happening in England now 
is you've got 70%, I think, of the population with one dose and 50-something percentage of the population with two doses. So they're, they're, they're well, maybe even higher, they're, they're well on their way to, to, uh, to getting up to the levels they need to be. But they've opened up in, in this inverted commas freedom day. They let people go to nightclubs, which are guaranteed super spreader events. Mm. But what's interesting in England is that the population is a bit more sophisticated than the government. So a lot of the population is still wearing masks when they go in, go inside and so on. So they're saying, yeah, I know the government says we don't have to wear masks, but we think we do because this is one of the ways we protect ourselves and, of course, we protect others. So right. it's a really interesting... Uh, and and in, in London, for example, Transport for London, the Mayor of London, has said you have to wear masks on public transport, regardless of what the government has said. You know, there, there is this recognition that, you know, maybe they have opened up too early. The number of cases is going down, as you'd expect with vaccination, but there's a whole lot of unvaccinated people who are going to hospital. So okay. it, it is uh, pretty dangerous. Um, Israel is, is more complex. They got very high levels of vaccination amongst the ordinary Jewish population, but less high levels amongst the Orthodox Jewish and the Arab. Mm -hmm. And so there is still some spread. But the question is, to what extent do they need to have booster shots in Israel, given they, they were early vaccinators? Um, and, you know, I don't know enough about Israel to know about what the population is doing in terms of riskier transmission, transmission behaviours. Um, that mask wearing and hugging and, and so on. Mm -hmm. so I, I don't know enough to sort of understand what's happening in that country. Well, that's very interesting the way you just described that for me, Stephen, that the UK managed the pandemic badly, but the rollout it was excellent by the NHS and the testing's good. Uh, and, and we've just managed to do the opposite. And, and, and it's really interesting to see how the the path just diverges so quickly. Yeah, and, and it's all about political leadership. Um, in Australia, the, the management of the pandemic was a state issue, and so we actually got to see differences among the states. What's mm. interesting, another interesting thing, David, is this issue of technology. Basically, the only test you can get for um, COVID in Australia is the PCR test, mm -hmm. whereas in the United Kingdom, there's widespread use of the rapid antigen test. So, you know, and so we, when I said their testing strategy is better over there, that's that's what I was in part thinking about, that, mm -hmm. you know, they have options. The, the rapid antigen test is a tenth the price, I think, of the PTR test. And mm -hmm. so you can use it as a, as a screening test. I mean, if you think about this coming back to the issue of schools, you know, if, if you don't have a vaccine for school kids, you, what are you going to do to protect the school population? Well, one answer is... Monday, Wednesday and Friday, before you walk through the school gates, you do your um, rapid antigen test. And if you test positive, your whole cohort goes and does the PCR test. Right. And, you know, so you just stop the virus getting into the schools. And, and the evidence is that it, it's, a, you know, it's good enough for that sort of purpose. Um, and it's very, very cheap. So we can afford to do every school kid Monday, Wednesday and Friday just as a, as a precaution. And yet because, and the rapid antigen tests have been approved in Australia, but we're just not, we're just not using them. I, who knows why? Is it because the PCR test was the first one cab off the rank? 
uh, and some people make a lot of money out of PCA mm-hmm. and you know rather than saying well we've got this new test now so we've got to change the way we think about our testing strategy so we do it just way more frequently uh, and we can afford to do it way more frequently because the test is Stephen, I just wonder whether part of that is to do with um, having, first of all, to educate the population as to what it is, uh, where to get it, how to use it and what it means. And it looks as if you have to do some sort of education even before you introduce this new technology. But like you, uh, I, I, I just wonder why there isn't even the beginnings of an education program. It's a good question, David. And we we need to what we've what we've learned in the past. If I hark back to the the days days of AIDS, mm-hmm. engaging the communities affected was a really core part of the public health endeavour. And again, Australia did extraordinarily well because we mobilised those communities to understand the risks and to actually address them. There hasn't been the same mobilisation of the Australian population. So we all understand the risks of COVID. We you know, we're, we've, we've seen that, but we haven't really been mobilised to think about what the next steps are and how we're going to do it. We, we you know, three months ago, when people, there were surveys, people were saying, a very large portion of the people were saying, yeah, I'm not going to get vaccinated, I don't need to. The, the number, the proportion of the population who are saying that has dropped dramatically, basically, I think, because they look out the windows and see that they can get COVID tomorrow, so they ought to get vaccinated today if they can. And so educating the population about the safety of vaccines, educating the population about where you can get vaccines, education the public about the benefits of vaccines, all of these things should have been part of what we were doing over the last couple of months, but yes. uh, they've been strangely absent. Uh, I have to admit, uh, Stephen, that um, that was a while ago that I spoke to Bill Botel, and he was saying the same thing about uh, public education campaigns coming from the grassroots and involving communities uh, completely missing. Yeah, and it's really strange. I mean, the risk the risk literature is pretty clear about who people listen to. And by and large, they don't listen to politicians. And yet our entire strategy in terms of these risk communication messages, mm-hmm. they do listen to experts and so on. But more or less our entire strategy is about the Prime Minister standing up and telling us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And, you know, you think, we know that is not going to work. Why do we persist in doing it? Oh, look, I, 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 I'm sorry. When we speak like this, Stephen, I, I just have memories of a particular American president um, doing something like that. I mean, it, it just doesn't work. You're right. It, it's just a horrible image when what you want is people you will trust, who know you, who identify with you and you're with them. Uh, talking to you at the level you understand. David, there is a literature, there is a science about risk communication that we should be using, just as there is science about how to make a vaccine, you know, and we just seem to ignore these, um, you know, basically the social sciences, the sociology mm-hmm. of, of the pandemic, and we think of it solely as a medical in inverted commas. Another missed opportunity. But I hope they will pick up on this one with the rapid testing, because I agree with you. It's a very important unused technology in Australia. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's something that the public can do themselves. You can be given a bundle of, I think in, in the United Kingdom, all kids are given two 
tests and they have to use them two tests a week, I think. I don't know. But, um, you know, it's the sort of thing that people can interpret for themselves and say, whoops, yeah, I need to go and get a proper test. Stephen, coming close to it, uh, the end, uh, just a couple of other questions. Um, basically, the AMA had largely welcomed the roadmap, but added that we needed to fix holes in the hotel quarantine. <laughs> Certainly, we see new facilities being approved in Victoria, WA and Queensland. Is this a case of too late, too little too late for our citizens trapped overseas and those who wish to come to Australia to study, to work or to migrate? So I think we knew in June of last year that our hotel quarantine arrangements weren't working. Mm. We knew in November of last year what we should do about it. There was <laughs> a, a, a national report and a Victorian Royal Commission, both of which said the same sort of thing, it's mm. hotel quarantine. We knew in the middle of last year that COVID was spread by aerosols spreading. Mm -hmm. So there are all sorts of things we knew that, you know, hotels built for holidaymakers are not necessarily the right place to accommodate uh, mm. people with highly spread spreadable infectious diseases. Mm. So we knew seven or eight months ago that the right answer was do something different about quarantine. We also knew back then that Howard Springs worked. Mm. What was Howard Springs? Howard Springs was a not purpose-built quarantine centre, but rather a mining camp, but lots of open air, lots of space. It, it, it worked. So what the puzzle for me is, why didn't we back, back then say, we are going to do this and do it quickly so it can be up and running by March? And, and there was this political handball of, no, the Commonwealth's not going to pay for it and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And but what is the tragedy is that could have saved more mm. uh, of what's happening right now. And the reality also is that there's going to be another virus. Mm. You, know, we, we, you know, this is going to be at least another 12 months. And the cost of the quarantines, the new quarantine facility, dedicated purpose-built quarantine facility, is a fraction of what the lockdowns are costing in Sydney and Melbourne. I hear you loud and clear, thought the same thoughts, scratch my head, and, well, anyway. But David, just... this is not hindsight bias. The reviews and all of this said that back in December, November, December of last year. So it was just politicians sitting on their hands, not doing what should have been done. Even your point about the um, virus being spread by aerosols, I wondered how long did it take before those in power actually heard it said? Anyway, I'll leave that. So long intro, Stephen, last question. How long is this pandemic going to go for? I, you know, the, the real question, David, is when will we have enough percentage of the population, of the whole population vaccinated, that the, the spread, it will die out mm -hmm. because of the high levels of vaccination? Well, assuming it doesn't mutate again, and the Delta is the last variant, <laughs> and it's going to be March or April or sometime like that early next year. But the risk then is, what about the next mutation? Will the existing uh, vaccines work against the next mutation? And will we get the rollout of our booster shots right <laughs> from the train wreck of this year? And as I said earlier, David, I'm a poly and I'm a bit of optimist, so I hope April... March, April of next year, things will not run. 
Stephen, I love you being a Pollyanna, but right now in New South Wales, I'm afraid I can't share your sentiment, uh, but I really value this time with you. It's been wonderful. And thank you for just answering these important questions for us. Thanks, David. It's been a pleasure. Great to talk to you. Have a great day, Stephen. Same to you. Bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.